following program is from the Latin Pulse archives, so some of the news items included are no longer current. This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have electoral politics on our minds, both in the United States and Latin America. We'll have an in-depth discussion of President Barack Obama's Latin American policy and if we can expect a shift with elections around the bend in 2012. Also, we'll have the second part of an interview from last week reviewing electoral politics throughout Latin America. Even our new segment this week features a discussion of presidential politics in Venezuela. Here's this week's news highlights from Latin America with Vanessa Hayes' Gonzati. The Mexican government is investigating videos on the internet uploaded by a group called the Mata Zetas, or Zetas Killers. A gang of men wearing ski masks have posted at least two videos, one in July and one this week. The government believes the group is linked to the Sinaloa Cartel. The masked men claim to be silent warriors protecting the Mexican people. As an ethical principle, we have completely prohibited extortion, kidnapping, theft, and everything that affects the country. We constitute the armed force of the people and for the people, and our only target is the Zeta cartel. Deserters from an elite military unit founded the Zetas, and the group is known for its brutality. It is one of the most powerful drug cartels and paramilitary groups in Mexico. The Mexican Interior Department said this week that while the Zetas must be defeated, it should be done by methods within the law. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez won't find voters so receptive in the upcoming presidential election next year. That's according to José Antonio Gil Yepes, president of the consulting firm Data Analysis. He says that polls give Chavez almost 38% of approval, while Gabriles Radonsky, the main opposition candidate at the moment, gets almost 36%. The key factor for the opposition to have a chance is uh, the three things. One is that they have one candidate. I think that's agreed upon, and I, the, there is a huge probability that that will be so. Second, that uh, the parties stay united through the Mesa de Unidad. Well, I think that also has a high probability. But the third condition is to enlarge the opposition coalition. He believes the last factor has a low probability of happening, but it would be crucial for another candidate to have a chance against Chavez. Gil Yepes made his comments at a meeting of the Inter-American Dialogue in Washington, D.C. this week. The Cuban government will allow citizens to buy and sell cars starting this week. It is a major step for Cuba as part of the economic transformation that people have been awaiting for decades. The government announced the move in April, but sales have been on hold until the official Gazette published the measure. Only cars built before the 1959 revolution could be sold without restriction up until now. Buyers and sellers will have to pay a 4% tax, and buyers will have to declare that the money comes from legal means. The new law allows car sales from all models and years. The government also announced that it plans to legalize the sale and purchase of real estate by the end of 2011. I'm Vanessa Hayes-Gonzari for Latin Pulse. 
Thank you, Vanessa. And now, as promised, our in-depth interview on electoral politics in Latin America, the second part of our in-depth conversation with Eric Hirschberg. Our guest today is Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Eric, recently you were one of the key panelists discussing the forward look at elections in Latin America. So our question to you today is, what elections are on the horizon that we should be paying attention to here in the U.S., and why should we be paying attention to them? Well, the panel that we that we organized and participated on um, was looking not just forward, but it was really looking at 2011. So three of the elections that were of interest were looking forward, which are the Guatemalan and Argentine and Nicaraguan presidential elections. But one of them was also looking back, which was the Peruvian presidential election, which I actually think is an extremely interesting one. And so the occasion for that discussion was simply, um, what do we take from the apparent outcomes of those that are on the way and the outcomes of the Peruvian that had just happened, what do we take from that in terms of lessons for where is Latin American democracy today? Well, the past is preface, so what about Peru? Well, I think Peru, there were a couple of things that were particularly interesting. And Peru is among the countries in the world and certainly in Latin America that has had most impressive rates of economic growth for nearly a decade. Huge boom in um, commodity exports, primarily mining. Uh, But what is interesting is that in Peru, unlike a number of other Latin American countries whose growth was almost that impressive, Peru did very little to distribute the fruits of that growth. Uh, You had governments in Peru that, yes, invested a little bit more in anti-poverty programs, uh, but that did not substantially tax the royalties on multinational mining companies that were exporting billions of dollars from Peru and did not systematically try to reduce levels of inequality, economic inequality, that had been so historically severe in Peru. And that's different from what you see in countries like Argentina or like Brazil. Uh, where there were governments that were seriously committed to redistribution. And so what happened was successive presidents in Peru presided over remarkable booms, uh, but not much improvement in distribution, and lo and behold, they weren't popular. And what is very interesting to me about the Peruvian case, and I don't think that this was sufficiently understood in the United States, was that the candidate who won was the candidate who said this was unacceptable. It was the candidate who said that the development model had to be about distribution and that there had to be serious taxation on the windfall profits of mining and energy companies. And the fact that that candidate, whose whose credentials as a Democrat, as a former army officer whose human rights past is uh, uh, checkered uh, and unclear that that weak candidate uh, was able to win, uh, I think speaks to the degree to which his economic and social message um, had real potency. The other thing that's important about the Peruvian election is that the unsuccessful candidate in the runoff election was Keiko Fujimori, who is the daughter of the imprisoned former dictator Alberto Fujimori. And the sense that, from a human rights perspective, the election of Keiko was going to be a mechanism for establishing impunity for offenses committed under the regime of her father, both human rights and corruption offenses, uh, also, I think, suggested that a democratic election in Peru 
was likely not to let that happen. And so overall, I think the Peruvian case is one that we can feel quite good about what happened. Well, you talked about redistribution. Since that was on the agenda in Argentina, what do we look forward to there? Well, I think the Argentina case is um, further evidence of how important the social question is in Latin American democracy today, because what we're likely to see in Argentina is a decisive victory, a decisive re-election of Cristina Fernández de Kirchner. And if anything distinguishes her administration and that of her predecessor, her late husband, Nestor Kirchner, um, it has been a commitment to redistribution. Uh, And it is interesting because there is much that one can criticize the Kirchners about. Um, There are, I think it's fair to say, um, considerable signs of corruption. There is cooking the books on the inflation rate. Uh, There are um, very... uh, authoritarian ways of dealing with, um, with, with opposition. They're very autocratic, I should say, rather more than author- authoritarian. Um, but on the questions of economic distribution, poverty, and social welfare, they have been committed to some substantial transformations in Argentina, and they're getting rewarded for it. So you're predicting that the opposition doesn't have a chance then? That's right. Okay. Since you mentioned autocrats, I'll move on to Nicaragua. Well, that's a good segue, Rick. Um, Thank you. I think that the central, one of the things that we can take from looking at the 2011 elections um, in Latin America is that, and this is kind of a cliche, but but bear with me, Latin America is not a single place. Uh, Latin America is a highly variegated part of the world. And one of the... And actually, one of the purposes of this program is to help differentiate figure that, that out our right. listeners and yeah. figure that out. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I find most useful as I study the region now and a lot of what I do is look at political economy is the bifurcation between Central America and Mexico on the one hand and South America on the other. And I think if you were to do a sort of a cataloging of what the central problems are in these various countries, you'd actually find some clustering together of Central American and Mexico problems, clustering together of South American problems. And they look like fairly different regions. Um, and we could have a long conversation about why that is. But it's, it's something that I... Maybe um, on another day. Right. But I think it's something worth keeping in mind when you approach the region. When Central American cases, Guatemala and Nicaragua, are different from the South American um, in the degree to which the basic institutions of constitutional democracy are so fragile. Uh, In Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega has run roughshod over every kind of constraint on executive authority. He's rigged the Supreme Court, he's rigged the election body, and so on and so forth. And he has distributed... Uh, a lot of resources to the poor majority in Nicaragua made clear that these are payments in exchange for political support, and he's dealing with an extremely weak and divided opposition, and he will win very easily. So a different type of redistribution. It's a different kind of redistribution, but it is still redistribution. And if you look in public opinion polls, Ortega is very popular. Ortega and Ortega's wife, the first lady, are credited with providing basic subsidies, basic goods, cash transfers to uh, a majority of the population in a country that's very poor and that needs those supports. I don't want to insult anyone here, but uh, some people haven't tuned in to Nicaragua since the Sandinistas were real left-wing rebels. 
are, in your opinion, not that way anymore. Well, I think this Sandinismo ended up eventually in splitting. And so you have um, one um, or multiple, actually, currents of Sandinismo that are in opposition to Daniel Ortega. And Daniel Ortega, of course, was one of the original guerrilla leaders in the 1979 revolution, who then was president of Nicaragua through the 1980s until he lost um, uh, an election in 1990 following the Contra War. And Daniel Ortega then has made a kind of political um, um, reemergence in recent years, um, but with a very different kind of, of coalition. Um, it's very much a personalist coalition around a political machine that he controls, and he is engaged in legislative alliances with right-wing small parties that have enabled him to weaken various institutions that would limit his authority. And the opposition, actually, is in significant part comprised of people from the old socialist, social justice, democratic deepening Sandinismo. So this type of uh, caudillo politics, which is very traditional for Central America, that's returned to that's Nicaragua. That's absolutely what we have in Nicaragua. That's absolutely what we have in Nicaragua. And I think, you know, Nicaragua will hold elections later this year, but there's a real question about whether we can call these democratic elections. Are so, these free and fair? Are they going to be counted fairly? Uh, can candidates who want to run because they're citizens of Nicaragua actually get on the ballot? All these questions are up in the air in Nicaragua now. We only have a few moments to deal with Guatemala, but... Caldeo politics there or something different? Um, Caldeo politics, yes, but what's particularly important about Guatemala is, in fact, the security problem and the violence. And you have to keep in mind that Guatemala is a society where tens and tens of thousands of people were killed during a civil war that really wasn't so much a civil war. It was really about military-run states affecting terror against the population, largely a rural indigenous population. Uh, and that was the experience of Guatemala from the 70s into the 90s. And following the peace accords in the mid-90s, there was a gradual um, um, disappearance of the military from governance. And what has happened over recent years is that Guatemala has become uh, embroiled in extremely severe organized crime-driven violence that state institutions are both incapable of dealing with and increasingly complicit in. And in that context, a desperate population is yearning for some kind of magic imposition from above. And a former military commander has come in and said that he will repress more than anyone else, and he's likely to be elected as a result. Oscar Perez Molina's leading in the polls, led in the first round of the elections, and so that's your prediction? Well, the one thing I, I thought that was interesting about um, the first round, and again, Guatemala, like many other Latin American countries, um, there's a first round, and typically if the leading candidate doesn't get 50%, or in some countries it doesn't get 10% more than the second candidate, there's a runoff between the top two candidates. And so in Guatemala, going into the first round uh, earlier this month, there was a sense that Pérez Molina might actually get a majority. In effect, he only got 37%. And that's actually quite interesting. And it suggests that even while they're looking for a military man on horseback, there are still bad memories of what the military affected in Guatemala. So do the businessmen who are running against him, do they have a chance? My sense is they don't. Um, my sense is that they, one of the things that characterizes Guatemalan politics is the utter lack of institutionalized political parties and, for that matter, institutionalized actors in general. So these candidates are candidates 
um, with political parties that, uh, that could fit in a taxi, right? They're not, in, they're not the reflection of institutions. They're not the reflection of the um, integration of societal groups that use political parties as a vehicle for transmitting their collective interest through the state. Um, they're much more episodic vehicles for individuals. They're created in order to contest an election, and then they disappear. Well, with that, our review of uh, Latin American elections, recent past, and uh, coming up in the coming months, uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Eric Hirschberg, the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Thank you again. Thank you. A restless energy blows across the globe. The desire for human rights. Yet every day, people are tortured, imprisoned, executed, or disappeared simply for their identity or their beliefs. That's why Amnesty International speaks out to protect people's basic human rights, to change the sounds of suffering to the sounds of freedom. Call 1-800-AMNESTY. It's your human right. 1-800-AMNESTY. Our next guest, Bill Leogrand, is an award-winning author and the dean of the School of Public Affairs at American University. His latest book, Our Own Backyard, the United States and Central America, won an award from the American Library Association, and he's a noted expert on U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. In the most recent issue of the NACLA Report on the Americas, our guest wrote a featured piece on U.S. relations with Cuba. Bill Leogrand, welcome to Latin Pulse. Could you summarize a bit for us uh, about your feelings concerning the Obama administration's policy on Cuba? Well, you know, President Obama, during the campaign, said that we'd been pursuing the same policy toward Cuba for 50 years, and it hadn't worked, and it was time to try something new. So there was great expectation when he came to office that, in fact, he was going to make a radical departure in the policy of hostility that has really characterized U.S.-Cuban relations since 1959. It looked like he had uh, a constellation of circumstances that made that politically possible. There was a lot of pressure from Latin America to change U.S. policy toward Cuba. In the uh, Summit of the Americas held in April 2009, just after the president's inauguration, uh, Latin American presidents made the Cuba issue high on the agenda of the summit, and the president reaffirmed his intention to change U.S. policy. Um, he won Florida, even though during the campaign he had criticized past policy and suggested a new openness toward improving Cuban relations. So the traditional fear of politicians that the Cuban-American vote in Florida was uh, uh, too dangerous to offend around Cuba policy, he seemed to have overcome that obstacle. Uh, and in fact, he got off to a good start. He, he undertook a number of early initiatives uh, he lifted all the restrictions President Bush had put in place on Cuban-American travel and remittances. He uh, reopened a dialogue with Cuba around immigration issues that President Bush had suspended. Uh, and he opened a broader dialogue with the Cubans around a series of issues of mutual interest, um, uh, narcotics trafficking, uh, search and rescue in the Florida Strait, uh, environmental issues. So there was a real sense that things were moving forward at a good clip. And then the Alan Gross incident came about. And then the Alan Gross incident came about, although I would say I think that in some ways the arrest of Alan Gross was the punctuation mark on a policy that had already begun to lose momentum. 
Uh, what it, the, the problem here is, I think, a pretty simple one. The president, although he wanted to engage more with Cuba, still had the same fundamental underlying objective of U.S. policy, which was to facilitate a change in the nature of the Cuban government. And from the Cuban side, that's not an acceptable condition for dialogue. It's not something they're willing to countenance in negotiations. And so uh, while one could make progress, and we began to make progress in some bilateral issues of mutual interest, there's a limit to how far you can go with that. And then you run up against these core issues, the U.S. embargo against Cuba and Cuba's unwillingness to change its own internal political and economic organization to suit the United States. Let's backfill a bit here for those who aren't tracking Cuba as well as, as you might be, that uh, Alan Gross, a uh, contractor for USAID, um, a basically an agency of uh, the State Department that deals with development in, in various countries around the world, um, is now sentenced to 15 years in prison in Cuba, and a Cuban prison is not a wonderful place to be in. Isn't that case now almost the sole focus of where the Obama administration is? It's become the central obstacle to any further movement in U.S.-Cuban relations. Um, Alan Gross was part of a, a larger project uh, that USAID started a number of years ago, um, as early as the late Clinton administration, then expanded during the Bush administration, for providing uh, U.S. assistance to support democratic change in Cuba. And that has meant both programs that are international and essentially public diplomacy programs internationally to criticize Cuba for its human rights record and its lack of democracy. But under the Bush administration, it became increasingly support in material support for Cuban dissidents on the island. Now, that's against the law in Cuba. And in fact, in 2003, the Cubans arrested 75 dissidents and, and sentenced them to a variety of terms in prison for having accepted assistance from the United States for this, this uh, uh, purpose of democratic change, which the Cubans regard as subversive. Well, Alan Gross was uh, a contractor operating under this program, and he was carrying uh, satellite and, and computer equipment into Cuba to provide them um, to, uh, uh, apparently, to dissidents. Uh, we don't know all the ramifications and details of exactly uh, what it was he was transporting into whom, but it was clearly a part of this program. It was funded under uh, the auspices of this particular uh, line item in the USAID budget. Well, in the purposes of transparency, let me note that I've been a contractor for USAID in the past, and uh, no one asked me to carry in satellite equipment or what some people would call spy devices into, into a country. I, I know we look at Cuba as an enemy in that Cold War sort of prism. Um, can we look at this case through eyes that aren't framed by the Cold War? No. Uh, this really is an anomalous program for USAID. Uh, I think you know USAID directors will tell you that um, they they've almost never had programs where they couldn't coordinate the delivery of the program with the host government. Uh, this is a case where USAID was engaging in in quasi clandestine or quasi covert operations, um, and frankly, they're not trained to do that. And and so uh, it's really in that sense not a surprise that Cuban counterintelligence knew what was going on in this program um, really from top to bottom. 
I guess in your article, if I'm remembering correctly, and please correct me if I'm not, that you make a comparison to the mad comic spy versus spy um, in regard to the Alan Gross case and what USAID is doing. Well, it, it, precisely because uh, the this operation was was so amateurish in terms of trying to run a covert operation out of a, a development agency, which is not designed for, suited for, people aren't trained for it in, in that agency. So um, the, the old spy versus spy uh, from Mad Magazine was a case where these, these, these two spies would sort of constantly try to blow each other up, and it was a real Keystone Cops kind of operation. Um, and the reason that I invoked it, actually, is because the artist who drew Spy versus Spy was a Cuban-American exile. It seems to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that during the 80s, when we were talking about surrogate wars in Central America, that USAID contractors and employees were targeted because they were considered members of the CIA. Uh, are we seeing a, a revisiting of that? Well, it's true that um, in El Salvador in particular, uh, people on the right saw uh, USAID people involved in agrarian reform in particular as uh, as, as extremely dangerous and, and undermining the social order. Um, and to um, labor organizers from the American Institute for Free Labor Development, the AFL-CIO's international arm, uh, were assassinated in, in El Salvador. Um, I think the problem here is that uh, the CIA doesn't want to be in the business of this kind of operation anymore. Um, they haven't been really since uh, uh, the early 1980s when um, President Reagan and the Congress created the uh, National Endowment for Democracy and the affiliated organizations with that to promote democracy abroad. Um, and in most instances, that's fine. But when you've got uh, programs that are being promoted in a government which the United States has a hostile relationship with, it takes on the color of a subversive activity. Certainly the target government treats it that way and responds that way, and yet the people who are carrying these programs out are really not, not trained or suited to, to be carrying out this kind of clandestine activity, and they get into trouble. Uh, let me go back to your article here in that I think you point out that um, former President Jimmy Carter had a visit this past year to Cuba, and, and I think you characterize his policies as being far more progressive than the Obama administration. Yes, you know, President Carter in, in the first few weeks in office lifted the travel ban on Cuba completely so that anybody in the United States could travel to Cuba uh, however much they wanted. Um, in his first couple of uh, months in office, President Obama lifted the restriction on Cuban Americans. Um, and then just this past January, he relaxed the restrictions for educational travel for uh, other other Americans, but you still can't go to Cuba simply as a tourist to to go visit the beach. That's that's uh, still uh, prohibited by law. So uh, yes, uh, during the Carter administration, the people to people connections between Cuba and the United States were actually more open than they are today. There's no political will at this point on the Democratic side to make any changes in Helms Burton, which is the law that prevents those things. Um, I would say that this is, we talk about Social Security being the third rail of American politics. You're not supposed to touch it, although people have been touching it this year. Isn't Cuban-American policy that way in an electoral year? 
Well, it certainly has been historically. Um, ever since the 1980s with the rise of the Cuban-American lobby through the Cuban-American National Foundation, there's been this sense that um, if you were regarded as in any way soft on Fidel Castro, um, the Cuban-American vote would go against you overwhelmingly. And because Florida is always a, a battleground state electorally, um, you took a huge political risk as a presidential candidate uh, to, to take a, a moderate, even a moderate policy stance toward Cuba. And I have no doubt that Obama's political advisors are telling him uh, it's going to be a close election in 2012. Florida, once again, will be a key state. And there's really no reason to annoy Cuban Americans and to get them focused on voting on the issue of Cuba when there's so much else at stake. With that, we'll have to end up this part of our interview. Thank you for joining us. Our guest has been Bill Lielgrand, the Dean of the School of Public Affairs at American University. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be hearing more from that interview with Bill Leogrand concerning U.S. foreign policy in Latin America in the coming weeks. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. And if you'd like to write us with your reactions to our program, please send us an email. You can find us at latinpulse.gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, dot gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa hayes Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>